first blood, we are going through the plagues of the book of Exodus. We have come to the very first plague, first blood. That will sound familiar to some of you. It was a movie uh, back in the early 80s, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, he was a drifter, ex-Green Beret, and he came into this small town, and those of you who have seen the movie before, you know he was harassed by the sheriff, Brian Dennehy, played the sheriff, and uh, he just didn't like the way Sylvester looked, and uh, kind of harassed him, tried to push him out of town, and uh, it got ugly, and uh, Sylvester wins in the movie, and he does say, they drew first blood, <laughs> Now, that movie has very little to do with our message, but I thought it was worth mentioning since it is the title. But the first plague that does uh, come against Egypt is a plague of blood. Literally, not just the Nile River is turned to blood, but all of the things that hold water within Egypt turn to blood. And I want you to think for a moment, if you were living in Egypt, let's just take it to modern times and imagine that you were hearing something about this God of Israel judging the land, and imagine that you went to uh, fill up a cup of water from your dispenser, and it was blood, and imagine that you walked out to take a morning swim in your swimming pool, and it was blood. That's actually what happened in Egypt. All of their water was turned to blood. And the big idea of the text that we need to see, even though I know this idea might gross you out a little bit, is that the Pharaoh had spilled the blood of the Israelites. In fact, he had, in chapter one, way back if you were with us, we know the Pharaoh of that time asked the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys the moment that they were born. And that was tragic but the midwives did not comply. Remember, they refused. And then the Pharaoh spread the edict out. And he said, now I want all of my people to do this. Every uh, baby boy that's born, you are to throw, remember, into what? Into the Nile River. And the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail on what actually happened. But we would assume that many of the Hebrew male babies did die in the river. And remember that the Nile River was seen as a god, one of many gods to the Egyptians. They, they documented about at least 80 deities and the names of those deities worshipped by the Egyptians. And the, the first few plagues have to do with the Nile River and what, how they saw that. Then there's going to be plagues on land gods uh, gods connected to the land, and I'm talking about gods with a small g, false gods, and then gods connected to the sky. And an important verse for you just to note, if you haven't done this already, is Exodus 12, 12, where God says that his judgments, his plagues, were literally executions against the gods of Egypt. So Egypt is a picture of a world swimming in idolatry. They had a God for just about everything. They feared these gods. Remember, when we looked at the serpent, uh, the staff turning into the serpent last week, the Pharaoh wore a cobra on his headdress, and uh, what was the other bird of prey? The vulture. And he had that on his headdress, and what they feared, they often worshiped. But the Nile was seen really as one of their main gods. And people who would travel to Egypt would say that without the Nile River, Egypt would just be a barren desert. It would really have nothing. So the, they were so serious about their worship of the Nile that they sang songs to the Nile River. And when the Pharaoh goes out and Moses meets him at this first uh, plague encounter, it may well be that the Pharaoh is going out to sing a morning hymn to the river. And there's a little speculation as to what he was actually going to do, but there are several morning meetings that take place between uh, Moses and Aaron and the Pharaoh. And uh, this one is going to be at the Nile River. It's called First Blood. This is Exodus 7, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn, if you have an ESV, Exodus 7.14, his heart is hardened. If you have a New King James, his heart is hard. And the NIV says his heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. 
Now, the Pharaoh is described as heavy-hearted. Literally, the Hebrew word is kalbade, and it means literally to be heavy, to be severe, difficult. It even has the implication of being stupid or slow, thick or heavy. It has the additional connotation of being burdened. And the Pharaoh was a worshiper of idols, and this is what idols will do in your life. They will add burdens to your life. So what the Egyptians worshipped, they also feared. And those idols became burdens to them. And if you follow uh, the pantheon of gods through Greek culture, Roman culture, Egyptian culture, Assyrian culture, Babylon, these idols were what they feared, largely, and they tried to appease these gods for, for example, fertility blessings. So they had... Several gods tied to the Nile. Osiris was one of those gods. And Osiris was supposed to have the Nile uh, going through uh, the bloodstream of this god. There was also a connection to this god called Hapi or Happy, H-A-P-I. And this was the main god that was worshipped, connected to the Nile. And Hapi or Happy was known as the god of the flood, And this God was depicted as a bearded man with female breasts and a pregnant stomach. And this is the way the ancients often depicted their gods. And they saw Happy or Hoppy as a fertility God who would give them blessings connected to the Nile River. This may be why the Pharaoh requested that the baby boys be thrown into the river as a way to say to the God of the Nile, namely, happy or hoppy, we are, we are uh, sacrificing babies to you in exchange for blessings to us. And the modern parallel is not hard to connect. Because in today's world, we abort babies at an alarming rate, and we do it, for the most part, in the name of convenience. And I'm not here to condemn anybody. I'm just here to tell you the facts. The facts are that it is a blight and a stain to any nation. And that includes the United States of America. And so Pharaoh's heart was hard. And God had said to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt, Exodus 3, 19 and 20, just to remind you of a couple of foundational verses if you want to take a peek back. I know that the king of Egypt, Exodus 3.19, will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. The word strike is where we get the idea of the plagues with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go, Exodus 3.19 and 20. If you're interested, the word plague comes from a Latin word, plaga, P-L-A-G-A, and it means a blow or a wound. The Hebrew words for the plagues here are more like miracles and signs, but the Latin word uh, gives us the idea. They were literally strikes against the Egyptian gods and goddesses. This is a quote. There were about uh, 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered around three great forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile, the next four against the land gods, and the final four against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn, close quote. In Exodus 7.3, another foundational verse, it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders, another idea of the plagues, in the land of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh's heart is hard. God has a part in that, and that is to magnify himself. Whenever someone is hard-hearted, they are closed to the word of God. Uh, Jesus told the parable of the sower of the soils, and you might connect the idea there. Some of the seed falls on hard-packed ground, and it sits on the ground. It doesn't penetrate, and so the birds come and pick it off. And that's one of Jesus's illustrations of how the word of God hits different soils. The sower sows the seed, but some of it hits the hard-packed ground or a rocky soil, etc. And it doesn't penetrate, or if it does, it only grows up for a short time, and then it's cut off or choked off by the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world, 
etc. And it does not bear fruit. And here's the Pharaoh, and he's hearing literally the word of God. Let my people go. But he won't listen. His heart is hard. And it is interesting to think about the fact that the word of God can go out and it can hit soft soil and it can produce 30, 60, 100 fold blessing fruit, if you will. And then it hits other hearts and someone seems to have a deflector shield around them. Every time you can't even go there with some people, right? I don't want to talk about it. I don't talk about, I remember I was in a, I was in a hot tub. Uh, it was at the gym and uh, it was in the men's locker room. So clarification. Anyway, I was in the hot tub. Anyway, that'll remind you of a song way back in the day. But uh, I was witnessing to this guy and he had a cross necklace on. And so I said, hey, why do you wear the cross? Uh, do you know what that means? And he goes, oh, I don't want to talk about it. I said, you know, you, wanna, you don't want to talk about it. He said, I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about religion. That's pretty much how he said it. And I don't talk about sports. And I said, if those three categories were applied to my life, I'd never talk again. It's <laughs> pretty much all I know. <laughs> anyway, I said to the man, I decided to talk about it. I said, sir, Jesus told us to talk about it wherever we go. So why do you wear that cross? I don't want to talk about it. Oh, All right. We're in a hot tub. All right, I, I get it. The Nile was so essential to life and prosperity of Egypt, it was personified as the god called happy or hoppy. Egyptians had religious celebrations at the beginning of the annual flooding of the Nile. One text discovered by archaeologists contains praises and adoration of the Nile for the blessing it provided. I mentioned to you the god Hopi as he was depicted. Hopi was the giver of life, in quotes, the lord of sustenance, the one who causes the whole land to live through his provisions. The Egyptians even sang songs of gratitude to this particular god. And whenever I uh, hear these songs or see them, it kind of makes me cringe to hear that people were singing to a river. But I guess it shouldn't surprise us that this is what people do. And this is what the Egyptians did. They had all these different gods, but this particular god of the Nile was important. And so Moses is told, go to the Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water or to the river and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. You shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. Now, so far what we have is directions from God to Moses. I want you to station yourself. You're going to go to the Nile. Everything to, it meant everything to the Egyptians. I want you to position yourself uh, next to this lifeblood of their nation. And I want you to meet the Pharaoh as he is going out to the water. Just to give you an example of a song they would sing, an Egyptian hymn dug up, says, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and keeps Egypt alive. And there are some people that think that the Pharaoh was going to bathe at the Nile. And in uh, Exodus 2.5, some of you will recall that the princess who discovers Moses in the basket went to the Nile to bathe. Uh, they say that the ancients didn't really swim. There wasn't a whole lot of people that were trained in swimming. So it's unlikely that the Pharaoh's going to swim. Uh, it's probably unlikely that he's going to bathe, although his bath could also be seen as a religious rite. He may have been going down to the river to bless the waters or to sing a hymn to the river and thank the river. Some people say, if you want to just get practical, he may have been checking the level of the river. I'm not sure why he would do that, but that's some of the speculation. But scholars say that if you see it from a religious perspective, and I think this is the way you need to see it, when the Pharaoh would go into the water, he believed he was getting power from the river. You see, people believed that the Pharaoh was divine and his power source was the gods of Egypt. So when he went into the river, it was a form of, if you will, and I'll put this in quotes, baptism. He would go into the Nile, 
to receive power from the gods represented by the Nile. And he would say whatever he would say. Maybe he would sing a hymn. Remember, he was seen kind of as the high priest of Egypt. So he was the political and religious head of their nation. And so he was deified in their eyes. And he would go down there and do what he would do, some sort of religious ceremony. And the Lord says, Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to meet him there as he goes for his morning worship. That's what I think is going on. He would go there to bathe, to be empowered, and he went there in the morning. And I will just say to you as a Christian, you need to learn to meet your Lord in the morning. Amen? Now, I know there's a lot of things that come at us, and a lot of you have crazy schedules, and I know there's a lot of demands that come your way, but I would just say to you, and I've discovered this in my own life, if I can just open the word of God in the morning and just get a little bit of Bible into me, even if it's just a few verses, it makes all the difference in the world. And what I do is I just open my Bible. Right now I'm going through Psalm 119, and I take a highlighter and a pen, and I say, here I am, Lord. I need you. Fill me with your word. And I could spend five minutes. I could spend a half an hour I think what really matters is that you meet God in the morning. Amen? Yeah. Kind of sets the, the whole tone of your day. You've noticed when you come in here, I was sharing with Shane in the back, uh, there's a, a, an account in 2 Kings chapter 3 where Elisha is approached by three kings and they're about to have war with the Moabites. And they ask Elisha to pray. And at first he doesn't want to but he, he agrees, and when he's about to prophesy, he calls for a minstrel. This is 2 Kings 3.15. This is a side note. He calls for a guitar player, and he says, I want the guitar player to play, and then I will prophesy. And there is something that happens when you worship God in song with other brethren. The Spirit of the Lord. Amen. You guys feel what I'm saying? The Spirit of the Lord starts to minister. He inhabits the praises of his people. Something happens. Shane said it in his prayer. Something lifts from my life. My burdens lift and my focus becomes him. Don't miss the music time. It's really important. And so I say that because there's the Pharaoh going to worship his pagan God in the morning. Many scriptures I could share, to you, share with you, but here's one. Psalm 5.3 says, in the morning, O Lord, Psalm 5.3, thou will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. In the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. Because if I don't do that, look, I know there's so much going on right now. And I am tempted, just like all of you, to worry about the yesterdays and the tomorrows. But I don't. I don't have control of any of it. All I got, according to Jesus, is today. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough issues. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. Just live today. Wrap your life in prayer and the word of God and go out in mission. You must be connected. Apart from him, you can do nothing. nothing. I keep trying to have the Lord prove that to me. If you're like me, I, I have to have it proved over and over again. Anybody else like me? Yeah. In the morning when I rise. Well, Moses is told, I want you to go, position yourself, and you meet this man. You meet the leader, probably the most powerful leader on the planet. You meet him in the morning. If you're interested, two later plagues begin with similar early morning meetings with the Pharaoh, either by the river or elsewhere. It's the fourth plague in Exodus 8.20, and the seventh plague in Exodus 9.13. You could see Moses intercepts him before he goes to worship his gods. And you shall take in your hand, Exodus 7.15, the staff that was turned into a serpent. Now, here goes the Pharaoh down to the river, and here comes Moses with the staff that was turned into a serpent that recently ate the staffs of the Egyptians. And I think Moses' staff was a little fatter. Can I get a witness? Anyway, he's a little heavier. You know, he had snakes inside of it. He had the other staffs. He put on some weight, you know. 
<laughs> and I think as Pharaoh was walking down to the river and he saw the staff, he started to twitch. Oh, there's that. I said, can I have my staffs back, staff snakes back? No, sorry. They're mine now. <laughs> and there's that same staff, and that staff represents divine power. Represents the power of God. It's the staff of a shepherd, and the Egyptians loathe shepherds. Can't believe a shepherd's staff is getting the best of our magician staffs. What's going on around here? But there's Moses, and the Pharaoh sees that staff, and I'm sure it brought back some bad memories. Gulp. In Numbers 17, uh, I had mentioned to you guys previously that. Uh, one of the things that's put in the Ark of the Covenant, according to Hebrews 9.4, is the staff of Aaron that budded. If you're interested, this is the origin of that number 17, 8 through 10. Just write it down. Now, it came about on the next day that Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, number 17, verse 8, and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Look at that. That's a Bible trivia right there. Aaron's staff produced ripe almonds. They were blue diamond, just so you guys know. <laughs> Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel. They looked, and each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. Numbers 17, 8 through 10. Something about this staff and it representing the power of God. It wasn't special in and of itself, but it became special because God set it apart. Let me pause for a second. God can take things in your life that seem to be ordinary and he could set them apart for his purposes so that things begin to blossom. Everybody with me? and grow, and even feed others. And our temptation is to give up on ourselves because we don't think we have the goods, and I got news for you, you don't. But the moment that you realize that, and realize that God can set you apart nonetheless to use you to be an instrument of his power, to take the ordinary things and make them extraordinary, that's when things begin to happen. And so... You will say to him, 16, Exodus 7, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, he's identified with his people here, sent me to you. This is what you're gonna say to the Pharaoh, saying, let my people go, middle of 16, that they may serve. The word serve is also a synonym for worship. The NIV actually has about as worship. A-B-A-D is the Hebrew word. Worship me in the wilderness, but behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. And so the God of the Hebrews is the one that Moses represents. He does not represent himself. This is not a conflict between a former princeling in Egypt and the current Pharaoh. This is a contest between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. Don't forget that. That's the big picture here. It's not just about Moses and Pharaoh. I will strike the water that is in the Nile, uh, quoting, God is aiming his first bow at the very life support system of Egypt. He could not commence at a more critical point. Take away the Nile and its benefits, and Egypt, regardless of its military behemoth, itself dissolves. How would the U.S. do if our main gods died, if they dissolved? What are our gods? What really matters when we have an election in the United States of America? Vote, voting does matter. But I'm talking about, I'm being a critic here. And what matters to people is simply this. It's the economy, stupid. Have you heard that before? That's a quote. It's always about the economy. 
And so America goes through a year of a plague. And what do we do? We saw the ugliness of our human hearts, did we not? The first run was to the god of toilet paper. Some of you might remember that. We're thinking, what in the world is wrong with people? All right? Get more of it! Get more of it! You'd think they'd be stacking up on beans and rice, but... I was talking to some friends last night, and we were talking about how... How do you think the church has done the church in the last year? Talking about the professing evangelical Christian church. What grade would you give us? Kind of saw our hearts revealed in many different ways this last year, right? Saw our fears, our doubts, our divisions. What we really value is it God and people or is it other things? Now, we saw some good things as well. <laughs> I was reading a writer this week, and he said, you know, we shouldn't be too hard on the Egyptians. We have our own creation myths as well. We don't sing songs to the gods happy and Osiris, but we believe in Darwinism, which is just really another way to worship happy. In much the same way the Egyptians praise the river as their creator, quoting, many Americans believe that we come from a random stream of genetic material, close quote. And so the God of Israel says to the Pharaoh, I'm going to strike your God. And the reason I'm doing it is that you let my people go because they are not to be worshiping you. They are to be worshiping me. The goal of the Exodus was to free God's people to worship him. And that's the goal of God breaking you free from your former life is he wants you to be free to serve and worship him. Not just to go to church and hear a sermon. To serve and worship him. To use your gifts and the one life that you have to glorify him. Amen? And everything in this world system is going to come at you to battle that. And there's things, obviously, that you have to have in balance in your life. But ultimately, it's about seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. I'm going to turn the Nile that you trust in to blood. If you will, I'm going to kill your gods. They're going to bleed. The word for blood is the word dom in Hebrew. You would spell it D-A-M or D-A-W-M. And even though in Hebrew, blood can be a color, kind of like you've heard of a blood diamond sort of thing, there is no doubt, even though people will try to use naturalistic explanations, that what God did to the river was turn it to blood. What kind of blood, you may ask? I don't know. Was it fish blood, animal blood, human blood? I don't know. But I know what the Bible says. The Bible says the river turned into blood. Some people go, we need a naturalistic explanation. Maybe the sun was hitting it the right way and it just looked reddish. Why do you need that? God created blood and water and rivers and seas and everything else. That's why you have blood coursing through your veins right now because he thawed it up. Amen? I don't know. Could the river really turn to blood? Does God really have that power? Oh, yeah. And much more. So I, I read this material and these speculations, and I'm like, why do you need a naturalistic explanation? Because people are naturalists. Miracles bother them. So they have to find other alternatives. Now, this is a lengthy quote, but it's worth hearing. Some argue that the plagues in Exodus are merely literary inventions. Others have tried to find some sort of natural explanation for the plagues. In the case of the first plague, it is sometimes suggested that the river did not actually turn red with blood, but merely resembled blood. Perhaps heavy rains in southern Egypt washed red soil into the Nile Delta. Perhaps the river was red with sediment from seasonal flooding, or sediment led to oxygen imbalance, which would account for the river's stench. Or perhaps the Nile was covered with a bloom of reddish algae or inundated with microorganisms. 
Whatever the precise explanation, some of these scholars admit that the plague was nevertheless an act of God judged, judging Egypt by overruling his creation, using natural disasters to show supernatural power. There are several difficulties with this. This is from Riken, with these naturalistic explanations. One is that, is that they have trouble accounting for the fatality of the fish. Another is that they do not explain why there was blood throughout Egypt and not simply in the Nile. Still another difficulty is explaining how the sediment or fungus or whatever it was appeared instantaneously when Moses struck the Nile with his staff. Then there is the plain language of scripture, which clearly states that the water changed into blood. The word change is hafak. It shows a real transformation took place. The word for blood is dom. It is generally refers to any thick red fluid, but uh, generally used to refer not just to any thick red fluid, but to blood, plain and simple. The real problem with trying to explain away this miracle, however, is that a merely natural phenomenon would not have accomplished God's purpose, which was to prove that he was the Lord. If the Nile turned to blood every time there was a downpour somewhere upriver, the sign would be meaningless, close quote. God said, the sign is that you may know that I am the Lord. And the sign is a blow for blow. You killed the Hebrew babies. You wanted to turn the Nile red with blood. So blow for blow, I'll give you back some of your own medicine. And I want you to hold your place in Exodus. And I know this is some, a little bit of difficult stuff, but turn all the way to Revelation 16. I want you to see the judgments of the bowls. If you've been around Christian circles, you know there's a big debate in Christian circles as to whether or not the book of Revelation is fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem or if it has some future implications to our world. And I want you just to see this for what it is and be thinking about the plagues in Egypt. Revelation 16, 1. I heard a loud voice from the temple, Revelation 16, 1. If you're having trouble finding Revelation, we can talk later. <laughs> but it is the last book of your Bible. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God, 16.2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people. We're going to see this in the plagues in Exodus later. Who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became what? Blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty, true, and righteous are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these, what? Plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Now, I wanted you to look at verses three and four just to see with the plague of the sea, or the bowl judgment, and the plague on the rivers and the springs, they become blood. And the blood is a... Uh, judgment in the book of Revelation. And here's what I would just say to you, going back to something I said just a minute ago. I don't know how you see that as symbolic, that language. I don't know how you see that as fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. I will agree that some of the book of Revelation does apply to the past. But I would also argue that you are really stretching your interpretation to then say this is not going to be literally fulfilled at some point. And I want you to imagine, and this is a scary thought, but go back to the book of Exodus, and here's the good news. If you belong to the Lord, you won't be here for the day of the Lord's wrath. Praise God. Yes. Amen. You won't be here for his wrath. You might go through some trouble, but you won't be here for his wrath. But the world is going to experience judgments that are 
unthinkable. And here's the thing. Even as the judgments fall, we just read, they won't repent. Instead, they blaspheme God. They don't turn to him. When Jesus did his miracles in Mark 2.10, this is in regard to the paralytic, he said, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, take up your pallet and go home. And here's my point. God is doing these things that the Egyptians may know that he is God. You could also uh, see this as evangelistic. And so Moses is told that the fish that are in the Nile will die, Exodus 7, 18. The Nile will become foul as this plague occurs. The Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile, I'll say. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, 19, over their streams, over their pools, over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. All these different words give you the sweeping idea that it wasn't just limited to the river, it's water, streams, rivers, ponds, pools. It indicates graphically the extent of the plague. It would be everywhere. It would stain the entire land. What they now worshiped would be making a mess all of their land, all over their land. Can you imagine how scary this would be if you were an Egyptian? It would be so freaky. Uh, there's a couple different ways to take verse 19. The vessels of wood and stone. If you notice in your Bible, uh, if, you, if you have the same one I do, vessels of is in italics or it's uh, in parentheses because it's not in the original. It, it literally reads, end of 19, both in wood and in stone. And if you're thinking with me, the gods of ancient Egypt were made of wood and stone. And so there are some scholars that would say, what we need to see is that uh, it was buckets, like if you had a wood bucket for water, that was filled with blood, which would be freaky. <laughs> Can you imagine coming out for your morning coffee? <laughs> we'll say, what? I was gonna pour that in the coffee, in the, my Keurig, that ain't gonna work. <laughs> but they also think that there are implications that the wood and the stone are the actual gods of the Egyptians, and that somehow the blood has migrated to them. And here's another interesting thing. I was reading this week, they said that the, the magicians or the priests of Egypt would wash their idols every morning. Can you imagine if you went to wash your idol in the morning? Some of you wash your idol every morning, but it's a different kind of idol. It's an automobile, but never mind. That's a different story. Uh, that was kind of a joke. Um, but can you imagine if they went to wash their idol and they noticed that it had blood on it and then they went to wash it and they had to wash it in blood? It was blood, 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 blood. And some of you are like, why, why did I? I'm not having lunch today. It's... But the intention was to send a very clear, powerful message. The serpent that swallowed their serpents was a sign the blood all over the land of Egypt is a sign. Think with me, Bible students. What do you think it's a sign of? Of what's to come. The firstborn are gonna die all over the land. And Pharaoh is hard. He will not bow to the God of Israel, who is the God of the universe. He will not be moved. He will not repent. His heart is hard. And so Moses and Aaron, even as the Lord had commanded 20, as he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of the Pharaoh, right in front of him, and into the, in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile turned to blood. As soon as the staff of the shepherd hit it, it turned into literal blood. Other Bible passages affirm and confirm this. Let me just read a few to you. We're short on time, so I'm gonna read them for you. Psalm 78, 41 through 45 says, and again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 78, 42 through 45, they did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan. 
He turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. Psalm 105, 22, I'm sorry, 25 through 29 says these words. Psalm 105, 25 through 29. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood, Psalm 105, 29, and caused their fish to die. Even the, the commentary of other taking scripture with scripture says it was turned into blood. It was not just a visible color. It was not, you know, maybe the sun shining on it or algae or any of it. It was literal blood. And the fish that were in the Nile died, 21. The Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was throughout all the land of Egypt. Scary, scary stuff. One writer says, Now all the citizens of the nation began to feel the effect of God's wrath. And pressure began to ratchet up on the Pharaoh. It was one thing for him to ignore a display intended to convince him of God's power, but another to ignore the cries of his people for one of the most basic needs, water to drink. In considering the first plague, it is important to bear in mind the Egyptians understood the Nile to be a god. They had to be so shaken by what had occurred. And the Pharaoh's hard-heartedness began to ripple out to his people. Pause. If you have a hard heart, it will ripple out to other people that you love. There is no doubt about it. Hard-heartedness doesn't stay just right here. It will impact people in your life. And look, there are times as a Christian that we could say sometimes, I feel like my heart has gotten hard. And we might pray, Lord, soften my heart. So the, the, Egypt, uh, the magicians of Egypt, 22, did the same with their secret arts. Can you believe it? They were able to duplicate this. I don't know how they did it. I don't know if they had red dye somewhere. They found, you know, maybe some clean drinking water. Where would they have found clean drinking water? It would appear that all the surface water was turned to blood, but subterranean water, perhaps in wells, uh, we're gonna watch the Egyptians start to dig around the Nile to try to find clean drinking water. Uh, perhaps that's where there was subterranean water that was still clean. That's my take on this. And just a side note, the plague lasted seven days. So it didn't last a really long time. But seven days would be plenty of time, right? To be trying to find water and digging around. And what did they do? Did they use red dye? Was it the power of Satan? I'll leave that to you. But they were able to duplicate it in some way. But get this, they didn't help the situation. They made more water into blood. Yeah, we can do it too. Nee, 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 nee. And they added more problems to their people. That's what the enemy does. You want power? I give you power over here. You don't, you don't need Jesus. Come over here to the dark side. Practice the dark arts. Do you know in the dark arts, some people actually ingest blood to get power? Now, that totally ruined your lunch, I know. But this is what people will do just for the sake of power. They'll even go to the darkness to get in, and it'll just cause more problems in your life. If they really had power, they should have turned the blood back into water. Amen? Then they would have been the heroes of Egypt, but they couldn't do it. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened because they were able to display something that looked the same. Here's one writer. He says, the skeptics probably comforted themselves in attributing what happened to seasonal reddening of the Nile. That it may have looked like and perhaps to skeptical Egyptians seen to be merely very severe manifestations of a known natural phenomenon would be consistent with the way that comforting self-deception works in general. If one is predisposed to doubt God, one will always be attracted to natural explanations for all the Bible's supernatural phenomenon, from creation ex nihilo to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you can fill in the blanks, close quote. They'll always look for a natural explanation. It was a twin. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Michael Rizzi has a twin, and so did Jesus. It 
was his twin. Or he was in the tomb for three days and Marcus Welby, MD. Oh, that totally dates me. Okay, who's a modern doctor? Anyway, never mind. Goes into the tomb and the cool air and he bandages up Jesus and Jesus then finds a way to get past the Roman guards, pushes the stone away and says, I'm alive. No. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, is overwhelming. And the Pharaoh turned, went into his house with no concern even for this. Say what? Boys, find me some water. Whatever, Moses. Whatever, Aaron. What about his people? What about the nation? I don't care. Wow. He didn't even care. So sad. And sometimes I wonder... As I look at our world, you could take business, politics, circles of religion, and say, do we care? Do we care about the people that we lead? Does it make a difference to us how their lives are impacted? Perhaps that's what we should be looking for in leaders. And so all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink. What a pathetic scene. But they could not drink the water of the Nile, and they dug around. Hey, get a bucket, get a shovel. And they were digging and digging and digging and digging and digging. This is what they did. And could you imagine? You're a reporter. You got a cameraman with you. Here we are in Egypt. Uh, Moses and Aaron met the Pharaoh first thing in the morning at the Nile River. And boy, things don't look good. Uh, the Niles look better. Uh, I can put it that way. And here's some footage of the Egyptian population digging around the Nile as though they were slaves. Digging, 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 digging. We're gonna find some, we're gonna find some water. Pharaoh's in his house being fanned, being fed another grape. Uh, whatever, whatever. Turn it off. I don't want to see it. Turn it off. <laughs> wow. That's this is just the first plague. Radical, isn't it? It was judgment time on Egypt. Are you digging for living water? Jesus said, if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again and again and again. And I pray, if you're here and you're new to the things of Christianity, that you would know there is water that you can drink, and it's not physical water, it's living water, it's spiritual that will satisfy your soul. You don't have to dig around in desperation to try to find answers in all the wrong places with the false gods of this world. They will never produce. That has been evidenced in this story, has it not? They, they stand no chance against the God of the Bible, the true God. Stop digging in the wrong places. Come to him. He'll bless you. And so seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. And Father, I can't help but think of Jesus being struck at the cross. Maybe 1,300, 1,500 years after this occurred, the Son of God was on the cross, pierced, plagued. The Egyptians could not reverse the curse, but Jesus Christ, with his precious blood, reversed the curse, the curse of sin, the curse of death. Would you bow your heart with me? Father, as we fast forward to that cross and we think about how you allowed yourself, Jesus, to take the plague, to take the blow, to be struck, as Genesis says on the heel, to be pierced in your side. Blood and water flowed. And John, commenting on this, says, believe. Believe that the God who struck Egypt was struck for our sin. And he did it because he loves us. 
He doesn't want us to experience the judgment of Egypt or the future judgment of this world. And so he was struck. And he hung on the tree. And he took our punishment. He took the wrath. Thank you, Lord. Would you just take a moment to maybe just ponder once again and afresh the gospel. The good news that the God who is our judge allowed himself to be judged. He went to that cross, took the strike, shed his blood that we might be healed. Father, all of us like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and you laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He took the burden and the sorrow. He was pierced for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement for my shalom, my peace, fell upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Thank you, Lord. We read about these plagues, and it's a sober reminder that you are holy. And yet, holiness and love intersected at the cross the person of Christ, if you haven't met him, if this is not how you've understood the gospel before, cry out to him. Make him your king. You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but it's something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you're the king of kings and Lord of lords, the God of the universe. I believe that you lived the perfect life that I could never live, that you died in my place, taking the wrath, drinking the cup. I believe that you went into that tomb, but you were raised from the dead, just as you said, I believe in your death and your resurrection. And I want my life to be about following you and building your kingdom and seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Cry out to him, now's the time, don't wait. If you're a prodigal and maybe... You've walked away from the Lord. Now is the time to come home, to drink once again of those living waters, to believe. You may cry out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Strengthen me in the areas where I'm weak. And Father, for this precious congregation, let your living waters freshly flow. Let them flow out. Strengthen the weak places. Father, for those who need healing today, there's a lot of issues in our world. Our bodies in this fallen world sometimes betray us. Would you extend your hand and do miracles? If that's your will, in the name of Jesus and for your glory alone, would you strengthen that person who's maybe struggling emotionally, mentally, Maybe they have a physical malady. We look to you. You're the only one that we can look to, and you are available. You are our hope, our salvation, our life. Our eyes are on you, author and perfecter of our faith.